This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Shawley. This is part three of the Red Box Whip Round, a special mini-series of interviews going behind the scenes of the Whip's office. In this episode, I speak to Anne Taylor, who first became a Whip in 1977, during the dying days of the Callaghan government when every vote was on a knife edge and severely ill MPs were wheeled into Parliament to stop the government collapsing. She went on to be appointed by Tony Blair as the first female government chief whip in 1998. Now Baroness Taylor, I joined her in her office in the House of Lords to discuss how the nature of whipping has changed and whether the end of late-night votes was necessarily a good thing. So, Anthony, you're unusual, if you like, because you were both a whip in the Callaghan government in the 1970s where whipping was a huge job mm-hmm. and a difficult task, but you were also a whip in the Blair government, chief whip uh, in the Blair government, at a time when you had a huge majority and, and presumably... Things were a little easier than you found it in the in the 1970s. Well, the problems were different. Yeah. When you have a big majority, um, everybody thinks it doesn't matter how they vote, or whether they vote against the government, or whether they're here, or whether they're not, and whatever. So, in that sense, uh, there were still issues and problems and things to address. But you're quite right. There was nothing like the tension, the daily trauma almost, uh, that we had in the 70s, especially in the last couple of years of the Callaghan government. And of course, it wasn't just a case of the sort of day-to-day getting laws passed. It reached the point where it's actually whether or not the government holds together. It was absolutely whether the Labour government would still be in office the next day, whether there'd be a vote of confidence that we were going to lose. Because if you lost a vote on, say, a second reading or something, then it's quite likely that that leads to a vote of confidence, in which case you've got to gather not only your troops but do deals. Because the critical thing at that point was that we had lost our majority. We'd had uh, a couple of deaths, including Tony Crossland, and we held... Um, his seat in Grimsby, even though it was a very marginal seat. But David Marquand, for example, had gone to, work, uh, to Europe to work with Roy Jenkins and he had a very safe seat in Ashfield, but we lost it because there was a reaction against it. So, you know, we had no majority for some of this time. We were trying to do deals with minor parties. We were just trying to keep the show on the road. We had to make sure on occasions that every single Labour MP was here, regardless of their health. And so this is where the sort of stories about people in was sort of seriously ill or being wheeled in. What, yeah. Describe what was actually actually happening at Oh, that there time. were occasions when there was somebody in an ambulance in um, New Palace Yard 
and Walter Harrison, who was our pairing whip, and the, the Conservatives sort of had to go outside and check that they were still alive so that they could be nodded through. We had somebody um, who was a junior minister who was actually on a hospital bed in one of the rooms downstairs with oxygen and drips and, and everything. But was on the premises, could be knotted through. So, yes, people's health was put at risk. So the technical... So normally what happens is a vote is called as the I lobby and the, the I lobby and the no lobby, and MPs have to physically walk through. But, yeah. but there is an arrangement whereby if you uh, are sure that the person is there and sure that the person has the, the whip has the authority, you nod through your own people. We would nod through ours, the Tories would nod through theirs. I wouldn't, we're not talking big numbers, no. but we are talking... But, but at a time when uh, numbers uh, matter. Exactly. <laughs> we are talking one or two when the majority was one or two. And how, how long had you been an MP for before you became a whip? Oh, just a couple of years. I mean, I, I was in my 20s when I got So you were, into, I mean, you were quite young to be dropped I, I, into this I was young when I came time. into the House, and I was young when I went into the Whip's office, but it was a fantastic experience that I, uh, yeah, I'm eternally grateful for. It was, you know, it was exciting, it was dramatic, it was sad, it was poignant, it was tense, it was exhausting, but it was about delivering a Labour government's programme and keeping the show on the road, which is what we did. Was there ever a sort of temptation to sort of not do very much as a Labour government because you, you, because obviously no, the way the way actually, of avoiding no, difficult votes it, is to not no, do anything. No, because the issues that we were talking about and the problems that the country was facing, those problems were just so significant that you had to do things. We had to have a prices and incomes policy. It was unpopular. Uh, it was unpopular with our own side yeah. at times, certain aspects of it. We had the winter of discontent, which was incredibly difficult for any government even if you got a big majority, yeah. that would have been difficult. And yet we had um, Labour MPs in marginal seats thinking if they voted against the government, then maybe they would you know, get some kudos from their constituents. It doesn't work like that, but lots of people thought it did. So you, know, you really have to persuade people to turn up and make difficult votes on issues that were desperately important to the country. So it wasn't a question of, oh, well, let's not bother with legislation. It was, yeah, the show is on the road, we are doing what we're meant to be doing, and we're just carrying on. And, and what's involved in your powers of persuasion? How did you get people to... to uh... <laughs> well, we don't tell everything, obviously. <laughs> but, no, I mean, some of it is... Um, and, and in a sense, it's, it's about the other side of the whipstock. Yes, you might cajole, yes, you might use sort of... Um, Walter Harrison type tactics, shall we say, and, and uh, persuade people one way or another. What, but, what, does, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, you know, the harsher approach. The harsher. Uh, the occasional raised we, voices? Uh, yeah, yeah, colourful language? Oh, colourful language was certainly <laughs> there. The job of a whip is not just to bully people into voting. It's actually to persuade them, to talk through the consequences, to allay their fears, to compensate for any problems they may have in a constituency setting for a vote that you need in Parliament. Because sometimes when you're doing something on a national basis, there could be constituencies that were adversely affected. So that MP might not want to vote with the government. But you have to say, right, well, you know, if that, then perhaps we can do this to alleviate that particular problem. So you're negotiating and you've got to know your 
members of parliament in order to know how to go negotiate with them. And what suits one person may not suit another. So you may be strong and a bit harsh with somebody. You may say to somebody else, ah, well, you know, um, that trip you were thinking of going on, that's going to be cancelled. Or or you may (laughs) say... Uh, look, you know, we understand it. We'll get a senior minister to your constituency uh, and you can have a, a meeting, a photo call, a, a, a party meeting, whatever, to explain, you know, what else is going on and why they need to be so worried about a particular issue. So it's a whole combination of things. And does it go as far as, you know, well, I know this is a difficult issue for you, but, you know, there's that bypass that you wanted for your constituency or school or... You, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not direct bargaining, but it is pointing out the wider picture. Because if you don't have this government, we're not trading this bypass or that school. But if you don't keep this government in power, you've no chance of that bypass or school. Because a different government won't even look at it. So it's not trading like that, but it is actually pointing out the wider picture. Because it's very difficult, and I think it's increasingly difficult for MPs uh, to be uh, focused on the bigger, wider picture. Because with social media and all the pressure these days, it really can be very narrow in terms of taking up their time and however many hundred emails a day they get. So the the job of being an MP has changed so much from being a parliamentarian, to a large extent, in doing you know, delivering on a government's agenda. They're actually, you know, MPs now talk about there's glorified social workers in lots of ways. They're sort of a yep. port of call for lots yep. of local issues. Yep. Party politics, people sort of slightly agree sometimes that party politics might even come into it. You're just there to yep. do the I mean, I, that changed thing. over the years. When I first arrived here, uh, people didn't have constituency offices by and large. They perhaps had part of a secretary here and they mm. could cope with that. Uh, over the years... There are very few MPs who wouldn't have a constituency Mm. office and staff locally based who wouldn't have surgeries, advice centres, who don't feel they've got to be there almost every weekend. There are people who take it far too far, who hardly ever go on holiday or take a few days and never recover properly because they're so uptight and worried about being away from something. Uh, I think the pressure on MPs today from constituents is very much more intense. It was always there. Maybe it was more in groups in the past, I'm not sure, but it was always there. But I think with social media in particular, the, the pressure on local MPs is intense. And you, you look on Twitter or some of these sites and you see some of the things that people are saying and you see an MP who says, uh, send me the details to my email, you know, and so that you know, it's still coming in that way. Um, and yes, there is an element of glorified social workers sometimes taken too far. And we've all had silly examples of people coming to talk to you about problems that are no way the responsibility of an MP. Um, housing issues are, block toilets aren't. <laughs> well, I think one of the big differences as well is that now a vote can happen, and actually votes now happen much earlier than they used to. Used Indeed to be, uh, they do. We quite, were there all night, very often. Quite late. Not- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But also a single vote. Somebody picked up on that on social media. And every single MP who voted a particular way gets bombarded on social media, even if they've misunderstood actually which, what well, the vote I was think, about. I think there was a, a recent one on Yemen where people are saying, why were you absent? Why didn't you vote this way? And some people have written you know, X numbers of emails, tweets, whatever they're doing these days, uh, explaining what they're doing to, sort of to the world. But there's a simplistic thing that, you know, you, pr- you write an email, you write a tweet, you press a button, and you've done your bit as a citizen. Yeah. Now, why don't you as the MP just sort it out, because I've told you, what, and they want an immediate response and a, and a straightforwardly simple response to what is an incredibly complex problem very often. And, and I think that's, there's an expectation that's almost been built up. So let's fast forward then. You were then a whip in the Blair government. Yes. And there was an awful lot of change, and there were an awful lot of people who probably didn't expect to be MPs, you know, the majority there was... There were quite a few, yep. was bit, And so you're sort of trying to educate them all over again in how politics works and the importance of delivering on a quite a big manifesto. Yes, I mean, the, the first year I was leader of the Commons, so that, um, that you know, the, the leader of the Commons and the chief worked work together as business managers and helped to sort of pull people in and, and understand what's going on. And it was the first time that we'd been in government for a very long time so that everybody had a steep learning curve. Very few ministers had ever been ministers before, even junior ministers, and that was relatively unusual. We're seeing a bit more of it now. Uh, you used to have, you know, so many years of Conservative government, so many years of Labour government, so many years of Conservative... You know, it used to be a pendulum more, uh, where we had long phases, long phases with Thatcher and long phase with Blair and Brown. So you had a lot of new MPs, and you had a lot of new ministers and you know, e- making sure that they could work together properly, making sure that they understood what was going on, why they had to be here, how the system works. I mean, there was a steep learning curve for an awful lot of people. And I think the whips have to play a very significant role in, in all of that because you know, if, if you're organising uh, how you actually do business, you know, you've got to have groupings that are small enough for people to understand how they operate. People tend to stick as best friends with the people they came in with. Yeah. But if you've got sort of 150 new people, it's quite difficult. You have to you sort know. of pass yeah, them Yeah, exactly. Somewhere. When I came, uh, we'd won very few seats in that election. So there were very few of us and we, we got to know each other very well. Um, so there was all of that. And it is a bit of a sort of personnel management type of job. And how different was the culture then? Because there were still late night votes... The bars were still open late. Was that still... I think... Um, things have changed quite a lot now. Things have changed. The bars were still open late. We did have some late nights, but not that many late nights because we were able to manage it with that kind of majority. It's less blokey than it was. The whole Parliament's less blokey than it was. You know, there's no smoking now. There's less drinking now. But also there's perhaps less camaraderie. Mm. Because people, when they're here together, 
every night, at least till 10 o'clock, and some nights a lot later, they do tend to get to know each other and to talk through problems. And whilst we all need our own offices, there is now a bit of a tendency uh, for some people to sort of go away in their office and work out all the answers to all the problems themselves, rather than talk it through with others over a meal or a drink or a coffee or a tea. And I think that that all being in the same boat uh, and here at night, I think that that was really quite important in, in the cohesion that we had. And actually, it was probably quite important in keeping the show on the road during the late 70s. Now it, it's less um, cohesive. Now people don't socialise quite as much as they used to. I think, I think exactly the same is true in the press gallery. That when I first arrived about 10 years ago, there was still the lobby... Yeah. table at dinner and all the people are working on the late shift would all have dinner together yes. and yes. wait for the late night votes and all that sort of and, and the as a result people come in and they do the work and they go home and there isn't that same yeah and there were pluses and minuses to that but there wasn't that there same are pluses and minuses people get away earlier though getting away at seven o'clock only matters to people who live in london it yeah. doesn't matter if you live in the north and if you're getting away at seven o'clock by the time you get home the kids are probably in bed anyway so i've never been a totally uh, convinced of that i'm not a fan of that the important thing is being able to get to your constituency on a thursday which makes an awful lot of difference because we used to be here till Friday very often. Yeah. And there was very little you could do on a Friday afternoon in the constituency. You know, schools don't want you at 3 o'clock on a Friday and factories are closing down. So uh, getting away on a Thursday is a big deal. Some things have changed. The essence of the job is the same, but quite significant things have changed. And the, the infamous... Black Whip's book with all the sort of dirty secrets of MPs. Is that, is that a myth? Is that Well, I'm not sure that many people would write too much down. <laughs> That's it. Of all the people... Everyone I've spoken to uh, for this series so far, they all say the same thing. You don't write, if, you, if you know people's <laughs> secrets, don't write it down in a book because somebody else, somebody else can find the book. Now, of course, you're actually in this house with the play about yes. uh, the whipping operation in the 1970s trying to keep the Callaghan government on the road. I suppose I should ask you, what's it like seeing yourself being being played on stage. Disconcerting, I think, is the, <laughs> the, the first word. The actress who plays me is, is brilliant, and when I look back at what I was like in those days, I think it probably is pretty accurate. And I went with my daughter, who's exactly that age, and so she's sitting next to me, and there's somebody playing me at her age, and you know, you're taking double takes <laughs> and wondering what on earth is going on. Uh, it, it, it's very strange to be doing that and sometimes you, know, you remember things that perhaps you'd forgotten a bit um, because quite a few people who were around at the time have spoken to James Graham. He's just a brilliant um, playwright. I mean, how on earth he captures all of that so much. It's, it's just amazing. It is weird because the whips of lots of other parts of politics and parliament have been opened up, even the lobby, you know, the way the journalism operates now is more you know more of it's yeah. on the record and all that. Yeah. but whip, whipping is the sort of last secret little bit of what really goes on in the whips office is one of the last secret little bits of parliament good was <laughs> <laughs> my reaction there are some things that you know don't work if everything is talked about and you know we i don't want the next person knowing this person's problems yeah uh, i don't know what somebody else knowing why we've let that person off the whip this week or last week or tomorrow or whatever and you know there are things that you know, you've just got to keep under wraps and the usual channels the the yeah. conversations which happen between the whips of the government and the opposition mm -hmm. 
does that mean that you end up sort of liking your opponents more? You get to know your opponents probably more than a lot of people. Yeah, you certainly get to know your opponents a lot more, especially when you're doing a committee. Yeah. Because obviously you've got to whip a committee as well. And especially in those days, committees were just as intense as the floor of the House because you'd have a majority of one. Yeah. And so you had to really carefully manage. But the other side always wanted somebody to be off or whatever. So you had to work it out and do deals, find out what were, what were the really crunch issues, make sure that they were treated uh, with the intensity that they required, but perhaps relax on a few others and let people off on those. So we did have to operate. I think different whips got on with different other whips on the other side. And certainly when I was chief whip and James Arbuthnot was uh, the Conservative chief whip, we had a very good working relationship that was quite grown up. We saw each other very frequently. We had formal meetings. You know, every week we'd sit down and talk about the business next week and all the rest of it. But that was just the formal bits. You'd be talking several times during the week on whatever it was that was coming up or worrying you or whatever, and the pairing whips would talk and so on. So to explain pairing, that's where... Because not every MP can be in Parliament every day for every vote. Yeah. It's essentially if... if a, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. So if, yeah. if, if you know a Labour MP can't be available, then you a, to the a, a Tory, you, you can pair them yeah. up with a Tory one so it doesn't affect the, the yeah. majority. But, but in reality, the Tories will have a list, Labour will have a list, and you'll see what they're like. And if these days it's not too difficult to have a bit of leeway, 10, 1, 11 here, 21 there. But in the 70s, it had to be absolutely... Everything had to be accurate. Bang on. You couldn't have people being away and not telling you. You couldn't have people slipping off. You couldn't have an agreement that you broke with the opposition whips because then the whole system would have imploded. And you're now in the House of Lords, of course. And yep. actually, the House of Lords is inflicting far more defeats on the government. You know, the, the whipping operation in the House of Lords seems alive and well. Is it? Well, how does it? How does it differ? It's very different because we have got the crossbenchers mm. and. Since the demise of the hereditary peers, for the first time ever, a Conservative government does not have a majority in the House of Lords. It's always in the past had a majority in the House of Lords because it could rely on the hereditaries. And they're finding that really rather difficult to swallow. They're just not used to it. When Labour was in government, we were frequently getting defeated in the House of Lords, but everybody thought that was normal. Yes, for a Conservative government to get defeated in the House of Lords is considered abnormal. Hence Cameron talking about having more and more peers on, on his side. Um, but of course it was all right during the coalition government because they had Tory and, they had and the Lib Dem peers. To, uh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you know, it, it is different now. And yes, we, we do have whipping here. I'm not responsible for it. And we do get told what are the key votes and what are the ordinary votes? You know, to, to get a government defeat in the House of Lords, you can't really do that on Labour votes alone. No. You've got to take others and with you. And that's where working with other parties yeah. uh, really comes in. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Antelia, thank you very much. Thank you. I recommend the play. Catch every episode in the Red Box Whip Round by subscribing to the podcast on your Android device and on iTunes, where it would be great if you could leave a review. And for daily insight behind the scenes on life in Westminster, sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.